Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At ANOVA, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like? And how do we get there? My name is Dr. Annalise Trudell, and I'm your host. This week, I'm chatting with Erica Hart. Erica is a Black queer femme activist, a writer, a highly acclaimed speaker, and an award-winning sexuality educator. We chat about fat phobia and body neutrality, anger and racism, king cat pride, and police at pride. Frankly, this is one conversation I'm going to re-listen to again and again. It's importantly uncomfortable and so full of learning. I absolutely loved it, and I hope you do too. So welcome, Erica. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So maybe you can tell us um, a bit about your story. Who are you in the world? Why do you do the work that you do? What's important in that? Um, Thank you. So I would say who I am in the world as a Black, um, first and foremost, a descendant of the transatlantic slave trade. I think it's imperative for me to speak to my ancestors and also speak to what informs my politic to a great deal. Um, Also, not all Black people are descendants of the transatlantic slave trade. And I think it's also important to name that as well of what is my, what I know is my lineage, um, which is very little. I am queer, so happy pride. Um, Queer as in that's how I love. Um, That's how I fuck. I don't know if I could curse on here, but hi, I curse a lot. Please do. Um, and, and also as a political identity, a resistance to um, whatever has been given to us as normal uh, or the norm to be, to be in relationship, to be in the world, to relate to systems of oppression that is also a part of my queer identity. I am a non-binary femme. I don't identify as a woman or a lady. Um, I'm also a breast cancer survivor. I was diagnosed in 2014 and have been in remission ever since. Um, And I think a lot of my work has been centered around my identities. Um, I'm a sex educator. That's the work that I do for, I guess, paid work. So I do a lot of sex ed, but I feel that when people think of sex ed, they only think of the act of sex and not also the barriers that keep us from experiencing pleasure. So the systemic oppression and structural um, forms of oppression that really keep us from just being in our bodies in a way that feels good to us. So that's where my work lives and also in talking about ableism and medical apartheid and how we are essentially killed by institutions. And um, sometimes some institutions work on us spiritually. Um, And when I say us, I'm talking specifically about Black and um, even non-Black communities of color. Um, And and also how they physically try to kill us. And medical institutions are, are responsible for that and have done that for many, many years, but it it looks different, right? We also have the institution of schools um, and how they also work to erase us and 
use many methods to have us conform to some sort of norm or some sort of way of being that has, uh, has a proximity to whiteness or mimics whiteness. So that is the work that I do. That's, that's who I am in, a, in the world, I guess, in like a few sentences. <laughs> okay. There's so much there I would want to dive into right now. Um, and I think just noting, uh, I think that was the most beautiful and wide-ranging definition of queer I've ever come across. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> does identify as queer. I loved, I just saw myself in parts of that. So thank you. Wonderful. Um, and oh, your centering of pleasure as part of sex ed. And I mean, the, the major lack of sort of focusing on pleasure. Um, yeah. That's part of my work. And I, I think that's incredibly important. However, we're going to pivot a bit into parts of your work uh, because our conversation today is centering on a few parts of them. You have a huge body of work and uh, we're going to narrow in on actually the body to start with. Um, so what is fat phobia? If you could kind of take us through a primer of what is fat phobia um, and sort of how it's connected to the roots of diet culture in particular. Sure. So fat phobia is the systemic oppression, systemic oppression, structural um, oppression of fat people. And it looks a myriad of ways. It looks interpersonal with something as simple as not simple, but something as blatant as your parent um, instructing you to or your guardians instructing you to lose weight or eat healthy because you don't want to lose. You don't want to gain weight. Um, or even being a fat kid and being told that there's, you know, you need to be more active or you need to go on a diet when you're like 10. Um, and then all the way to, you know, the seats in public spaces, in baseball fields, in academic institutions, even in medical um, institutions at hospitals, I noticed that even the chairs there are also fit for thin people. And then you have medical institutions who have really built this, the, one of the biggest scams, this idea that fatness um, equals unhealthy and thinness equals healthy. And a lot of that is a lot of the work of Sabrina Strings who has done you know, incredible work in the field of fat phobia, wrote the book, Fearing the Black Body, uh, the origins of fat phobia, is that we see that fat phobia has a lot of, you know, connections to this resistance to being black, right? And also treating folks in similar ways to how black people have been treated. So yeah, that, and then diet culture, I mean, it includes all of that, right? It's a billion dollar industry where you can turn anything into uh, a way to lose weight, even a pandemic that has killed over 600,000 people just in the United States alone, right? You could turn that into talking about losing weight or the pandemic 15 and how that then becomes the focal point of what we need to change rather than what what was that? What are the systems that are in place to actually care for people who are grieving, right? Who may have lost people, right? What do we do moving forward if there's another pandemic? What do we do clearly seeing the breakdowns that we saw in a pandemic? Um, that's not the focus. The focus is how to get the 15 or more pounds off that you gained when you were in a pandemic. It's like, it's just so, it's so vain and very mm -hmm. narrow. And it's just, it, it's not rooted in any care for people. It's rooted in an aesthetic. 
it's so vain, so shallow in that way, and so connected to other systems of oppression, as you just started mm-hmm. to really dive into, um, into racism. And I think the interesting part for me, I, I am not by any means an expert on this. And so what I've, as I've sort of wrapped my mind around how it's in my mind, how it's yeah. in how I experience the world as well, um, that element of it being a phobia, like a fear, it is a fear of joining the other for those of us who don't sit necessarily in the space of that. Um, and, and there's like this grossness to that fear that somehow that would be a lesser um, and that that's so ingrained um, into all of sort of how we value things all around us. And that's been really hard work to unpack. I'm also connected to um, like, I like running and I used to be a fitness instructor and the gross messages that are also connected into those spaces. Um, It's, it's really loaded to sort of, yeah, I think it's more sinister. Yeah. I think it's more sinister than fear. You know, Mm -hmm. like I think I'm afraid of snakes, right? Like I'm going to run away. I don't want to be around them. If I see them, I'm not, you know, I feel like a sense in my body, a physical sensation. I don't, I'm not denying that people don't have physical sensations to being fat, but I, and, and that they don't run away from even fat people. But I think that there's a, 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 a inherited hatred, you know, like I don't hate snakes. I just don't want to be mm-hmm. around them. Right. I'm just afraid that they're going to act physically harm me, but I feel like it's not the same in terms of fat folks, or even when we talk about phobias and when it relates to human beings, I think fear is again, another word that doesn't quite color it. I think it's genteel even um, to say that you fear mm-hmm or that people fear fat folks. I feel like it's more, or fear that they will be fat, right? I think it's more of like, I hate fat people. So I could never be that because I'm disgusted by it, right? If I die and come back as a snake, that's not the end of the world, right? (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not like, oh, I hate that something. Like, I know, or I'm disgusted, you know? I just think that it's, it's more to it. And I think it, it, that's necessary for folks. Sorry, my dog is barking. Um, it's necessary for folks to kind of unpack what that looks like beyond, I have a fear, right? I think it's so much deeper than that. I'm just nodding away. Yes, and you <laughs> called that out um, in my language, but I think it's also um, the word disgust is resonating yeah. like and, and sort of how we can conceptualize that as so much more than just a fear. So then how does that connect to body positivity? Cause body positivity is like this lovely depoliticized, let's all just love who we are, um, sort of accept our bodies and move on. And I'm, I'm assuming you have lots of good analysis around that. So connect that in for us, the, the body positivity movement. Well, body positivity was, um, co-opted from black, um, fat femmes, um, who were doing fat activism, right? This idea that you, you're resisting, um, the, this inherited notion that fat is bad, but also resisting the systems that uphold that. Um, and then it became, you know, kind of taken from uh, those folks who were doing that work and pushed in white people essentially took it and started to create what we know today as BOPO or the body positive movement, 
where conversations are love your body, right? Oh, I have roles and here are my roles and I'm going to love them. Or um, I have fat thighs and I'm going to love them. I have a big butt and a big breast, whatever. Anything outside of thinness is something that we need to have force ourselves or move in the direction of being positive about because how could you possibly love yourself if you're fat, right? Uh, and, and that's so deeply apolitical on so many levels. But one is that you don't have to love yourself. And that's something that I have talked about for a very long time before people started saying that body positivity was depolitical or apolitical. Um, I've always said, I don't feel like you need to love your body, right? I don't, I think that it's, it's optional, right? And I don't, it, it, it's also fleeting. It's like, why do I have to love this? Why do I have to love my body, right? If the systems and the world is telling me to hate it, it's not my job to love my body. These systems have to change, right? It really turns the focal yeah. point away from the work that I need to be doing. I, I feel like we always tell, especially black fat kids, well, you need to love yourself. You need to be self-confident. No, right? People need to stop treating fat kids like they're shit, right? They, people need to actually honor uh, the, the various bodies, the diverse bodies that people exist in. But that begins with systems no longer perpetuating this idea that fat people shouldn't exist. And that's really at the core of it. Um, and again, I mean, when you talk about body positivity, it's not just or when you talk about fat activism, it is not just a, a focus on fatness, right? Or um, a, a liberation of fatness, but when you liberate black fat people, right? Especially black fat trans people, you are liberating, you know, a, a whole, everybody, right? That's just, right. you're starting at the, um, you are working with folks like if you, you liberate the most marginalized, everybody gets free, right? That, mm -hmm. That's just evident. But then also beyond your physical body fatness, what, how are we um, uh, undoing and calling out the uh, uh, colonization that happens all over the world to people who are fat, right? How are we um, standing against police brutality, which is again, a body image issue, right? How are we standing against, um, you know, institutional racism? That's a body image issue. How are we standing against the apartheid of so many states that Western countries stand behind? That is a body image issue. If we just focus on this white girl who's rolled over and showing her roles, right? Mm -hmm. That what, it's not gonna make much of right. a difference than to have it siloed that, okay, now we're gonna pivot to talking about black people and police brutality, but not actually understand that it's all a body image issue and should be all addressed. Um, and not in, I feel like I'm saying all a lot and not in some sort of all <laughs> lives matter um, sort of standpoint, nope, nope. but that the focus for you know body positivity has been white people. Right, yeah. and there's no liberation with uh, centering um, folks who are not marginalized, right? And that's just the the end, right? Even a, a fat white person has a very different experience than a black fat person, um, period, right? On so many intersectional levels. Um, and that has to get discussed. And I find that in the body positive movement, it's just not, and I feel like people are starting to understand that. I'll tell you a quick story. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to, many years ago, like 
four years ago, I was asked by somebody who works in the, or who built their kind of career in the body positive movement. And she asked me to be in her book. And I said, yes. And I started to write about how um, white supremacy is the reason why we hate ourselves and, and elaborated from there. And she wrote back to me and said that I, we, I don't think my readers are going to understand what white supremacy is, right? I don't think they're going to truly get what that means. Is there another way that you can put it? So you're writing a body positive book that doesn't address white supremacy so much that you think that my excerpt on white supremacy won't address your readers. So you've built a following on the idea that white supremacy is some other facet mm -hmm. <laughs> in something else, not why you hate yourself, right? Not why there needs to be or, or is a body positive movement, right? And that it shows how depoliticized that movement began, right? How when you co-opt <laughs> and you Columbus a movement from Black people, you are trying to fit it so it look it's just it's everybody and you know you can love your body too and it's just that simple if you take these pictures and no right it's so much more intricate than that right and that was like such a rude awakening for me uh I was so pissed <laughs> that that happened but at the end of the day I'm so happy I wasn't in that book and that I actually stood for you know, what I'm seeing as true because uh, at the end of the day it would have just mm -hmm. been horrible if I just changed what I wrote to fit into some narrow version of what they thought body positivity was. And I think now we're moving in a direction of body neutrality, um, of relating to your body in whatever way that you need to, right? And it's a daily thing, right? Some days I'm like, you are bomb, like you're amazing. And some days I'm so bogged down from uh, anti-Black racism and queer phobia, I don't wanna get out of bed. Right. Does that mean I need to love my body? No, <laughs> that means that these systems need to go away. Sorry, that was <laughs> no, it was wonderful. Um, I think the liberating part of not having to love your body and shifting the focus to systems and those systems like you've talked about white supremacy. And I imagine ableism is highly connected into that, too. And like health politics you mentioned at the beginning but which bodies are considered healthy um and how yeah there's so much swirling into that yeah. i think you need to write your own book about this uh, hopefully Just, i will <laughs> hers yeah <laughs> i um i'm pivoting to something that i i know i have felt in certain ways but as a white woman this has sort of been read on to me very differently than it would have been on to you and that's anger. Um, as women, we're really taught that anger, you know, is a negative emotion that we want to sidestep. And yet anger uh, plays a really important role and is also read onto bodies really differently. Um, so what's the role of anger in the pursuit of liberation in sort of all the different um, anti-oppressive fights that we've sort of been swirling and talking around? And how is that actually connected to tone policing for certain people? You know, it's interesting. I think for white women, anger has been a tool to oppress marginalized communities. So anger is actually honored on white women when they are angry in the direction of black and non-black POC. 
Okay. And we see that in so many examples, right? The Amy Cooper, who um, it was in Central Park and got super upset with um, the bird watcher who was just asking her to move her dog so, so he can continue bird watching. She got super angry and called the police, right? But, and that was her react that that was like what was there for her to do right it's just like i'm angry i'm i'm gonna freak out on you da, da, da. so maybe in the direction of other white people white women can't be angry or it's it's been um seen as a, a function to kind of move away from but i don't think that that's the case or even the experience of most black and non-black poc in the presence of white women um yep. and i think too looking at how anger is turned into tears. Like, I think it's very mm -hmm. similar, right? That even though a white woman is crying because you called them out, doesn't mean that they're sad. <laughs> it just means right. that they may just be angry, right? That they're being called out. So even that. Um, and I think for, for black femmes, for folks who are gendered as black women, there has, you cannot show any emotion other than happiness, um, other than uh, being content um, with the world around you. Because if you have any upset whatsoever, or even if you are content with the world around you and maybe your voice inflects one decibel and you're uh, feeling away about something, then you are now angry immediately. Um, and, and that is the root of the angry black woman trope. Mm -hmm. And what Audre Lorde has said and, and wrote about in the uses of anger um, is, is so profound. Audre Lorde being a queer activist and writer who is now deceased and breast cancer survivor who is now deceased from the 70s and 80s, wrote about how anger is so necessary for liberate liberatory practices for black people right because we've been told and black femmes in particular because we have been told that you can't be angry right you need to respectably call out white people right you need to do it in a speech right you need to do it in a way where you are heard and that you are educated uh, if you are screaming at the top of your lungs or crying out of rage that is not okay uh, but i think the gift that audrey lore gave us was this reminder that you get to respond to oppression in any way that makes sense to you, right? You don't have to, imagine telling somebody who, who has come from an abusive relationship that they need to respond to their partner in a way that has them be heard. Right, that, that is the same thing that is told to black folks in regards to uh, responding to uh, essentially a white world that we need to do it in a way that is uh, condensed, that is respectable, um, that you know, will have people respect us, right? And, and even at the end of the day, even if I said it in the most calm Martin Luther King Jr. of ways, <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. was still murdered right it it didn't matter um how it was said so the the connection to anger and being present to your own anger and honoring anger right and honoring the anger of communities of color right is so important right and we do, and i say i when i say we i'm talking again about black folks is that we even do it to ourselves sometimes where if a black person is angry say okay if everything's going to be okay calm down 
No, like you don't have to fucking calm down, right? You can be enraged for however long you need. And I feel, I don't know, maybe this is woo woo, but I feel like it starts to live somewhere else in your body if you don't um, really acknowledge it and really honor uh, that frustration, that anger. Um, so I'm always, you know, looking to uplift and honor the ways in which my community, in particular, Black, queer, and trans folks are angry, right? And, and that they get to remain angry and not silenced in that anger. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was who that made sense to me. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> I also think for me as a white woman reflecting on when a tone makes me uncomfortable that's my work. That's where I need to sit and sort of get over that and see the value and the necessity of, um, and the righteousness of other people's anger through what they've gone through. Speaking as a white woman and feminism, what role has feminism in some really hurtful, harmful ways played in some of that tone policing? I think, um, as a gender-based violence organization, ANOVA, and, and we have some sister agencies sitting in today, there's, there's a long sort of affiliation with feminism. That's sort of the roots that we've come by. And yet many of us are predominantly white staff, white driven, white histories in some ways. Um, And so while we think of feminism as being like this safe, inclusive activist focused, it's actually done a lot of harm and can do a lot of continuous harm. So um, I know you've shared uh, some of the harm that white feminism and white feminism has created and continues to create. So what are some strategies um, or suggestions that you have for those of us who identify as feminists, but who are starting to really try to question and dismantle the harms of that white feminism? Sure. Um, I think my question always for feminists is why do you need a title? Um, why do you need to call yourself a feminist? Why is that important? Is the title more important than the action? Uh, and I think sometimes folks lean on the title so they don't have to do anything. Um, so that that's where I would start. And then I would also say that you have to look at the history of feminism and really consider if this is something that you want to be a part of. And then if you do, then how do you undo that history that has caused so much harm? How does your feminism look different than that of even Susan B. Anthony, who said, I will cut off mm-hmm. this right arm before I give a, you know, a vote to a Black person, even a Black woman, right? Um, and was friends um, with, why am I forgetting her name right now? I'm forgetting her name, but was friends with Ida B. Wells and lots Mm. of other black femme activists, prominent black femme activists, Uh, Sojourner Truth. How do you forget Sojourner Truth's name? Um, (laughs) So she's friend, like, it's like when white people say, well, I have a black friend. Susan B. Anthony had black friends too. And she still didn't care, right? Even her feminism did not include her black friends. So Mm. it's, how are you going to, Uh, reconcile that history. And it's not just Susan B. Anthony, it continued even up through birth control trials, right? Uh, By, you know, uh, uh, I'm literally forgetting everybody's name, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, So I'm not going to help you with that one. Sorry. No, it's all good. (laughs) It's all good. But you see it over and over and over again, this, this sort of desire for white feminists to become like white cis men. 
right? Mm-hmm. And and that is the goal, right? And and how black and non-black people of color do not fit inside of that goal. It's just not the desire to become like a white cis man, but also why do you want to become like a white cis man? Why do you wanna be on par um, with their power? Where is the dismantling of of that power structure, right? And, And I think white feminists have to deal with the fact that they are white. Right. And, and yes, gender based violence and gender based oppression absolutely exist, but it looks different for a white woman. It just does um, because race is is there and, and it plays a role in positioning who has power and who doesn't considering even an organization like this is predominantly white owned and it's not a white run. And that's not unfamiliar for a lot of, a lot of institutions across the board are white run and white women occupy those spaces. So it's important for white women to kind of consider what, what is the goal for your feminism, right? How does it show up, right? What are the actions you take um, that is consistent with feminism, but that is consistent with undoing and reconciling the the traumas and the harm that that has been caused under the guise of feminism Mm -hmm. and your original question why do you feel the need to call yourself that what is it that you're trying to indicate through that and Mm -hmm. can it just be indicated through actions yeah Um, that's that's a pretty powerful one um so recently, I'm not sure if this conversation is occurring. Well, I'm sure it is in different forms. But anyways, in Canada, it's come up. This is Pride Month. And uh, sort of there's been a renewed focus on the place of kink in Pride. Mm. And, um, you know, whether it should be there, whether that's sort of off-putting, ostracizing, not inclusive, whether that's actually necessary to be inclusive. And it also swirls right now with um, sort of the renewed conversation around the corporatization of Pride and sort of what place corporations should have, if any, in that space. Uh, So how do you wade your way through all of that? Uh, Sort of the place of kink, the place of corporatization and pride. How do we reclaim that space for flat, for fat, black, brown, indigenous community members? Um, Well, the corporatization of pride needs to leave. And I think that's what's causing the problems around kink is because when something is Corporate, corporate, I can't say that word. But so when capitalism enters the chat, it is now yeah. trying to make everybody look a, a in a way that can be sold, right? That can yeah. be given away to a, a large market that can be marketed, right? And it's hard to market kink because they're thinking of, well, what about the people who will be upset about kink. And they'll say that it's about children, but it has nothing to do with children. It's all to do with um, how can we market this and how can we push this out to large, uh, larger communities and how can b- queer people be accepted? And like, who gives a fuck about being accepted? Like, I don't care about that. <laughs> if I want to be out in a collar and leather chaps on pride, that is my business, right? It is about mm-hmm. a in honoring of how you love, how you exist in the world. And so many queer people occupy uh, kink spaces. Why Pride of all places should be the place where that's not a problem. Um, and should not be a, a barrier to celebrating pride. 
but and that's why we have to you know stop um rainbow washing and rainbow capitalism um and keep these you know large corporations out of our celebration because they cause more harm it's you know do i get excited i don't is target in canada no more it no was. more okay well there's a target <laughs> right target yeah has like a pride section every time in june um mm. and it's my former employer who was anti-black and horrible to me so before i worked there and i saw the little you know section in target i was like that's cool wow there's is that rainbow like for queer people whoa like, oh, that's cool. But then at the end, it goes away. Cause then I have to think about how is Target treating queer and trans people? Um, does Target have any black queer and trans people in particular black trans femmes who are hired to sit in the C-suite of the organization or of the company? Um, and what about this place that is collaborating with them to do this pride merch? I've worked there now. So I know the experiences that I had as a black queer non-binary person working there. This is all to make money. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is all to create some sort of image that they are accepting of queer people. And that's all they have to do is a rack of clothes. Come on now. Like we have to be way more uh, particular about the, uh, the, 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 the very um, showy, ways of activism, the ways in which folks will literally just hear, here's a black square, right? That means I stand with black people and here's a rack of clothes. That means that I stand with queer people and it doesn't. It just means that you know that queer people will buy shit and you want them to be, to be able to buy it there. <laughs> you seem to be gaining more than you're actually changing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. And that is always the focus of anything of capitalism, period. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, you linked at the beginning, and then my mind got bogged down between sort of kink and the corporatization. And that yeah. you, you bring capitalism in, you said you sort of create like one size fits all only is allowed access yeah. and kink is therefore not allowed access in sort yeah. of that version of the world. Um, and that makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. And I can hear folks that I have come across talking about, you know, what about the children? What about sort of, you know, family pride? And, and there's a deep seated connection to me there to not being sex positive and not being comfortable in a pleasure conversation. But I wonder if you can help me tease that out. There's nothing wrong with kids knowing about kink. It's a great conversation, a great conversation starter. If in a kid won't know, recognize, depending on the age, if they see someone in leather chaps or walking on a collar or with a collar, um, they won't necessarily recognize it. So if they won't be like, well, I mean, there's so much happening at Pride, right? That why your kid is only noticing the kid, the people in chaps is interesting to me. But if they bring it up, then it's a great conversation starter. Kink is one uh, is a consensual space where people ex go to experience pleasure, right? And that you don't have to say anything beyond that. You can ask them questions of what they think it is. Um, if the kid is, I would say, twelve and up, you can explicitly tell them what it is. I mean, you are going to see 
versions of kink in music videos, in commercials, mm -hmm. in movies, in video games. Pride isn't the only place that you're going to see kink, right? And you're not actually seeing yeah, kink, right? Point. You're not seeing someone, you're not at a play party. You're not seeing someone being spanked. Um, you're not seeing someone being flogged, right? You're just seeing someone in clothing that was suggested they're kinky. Um, so even that, you, you can also tell your kids, I don't know what it is. Right. And, you know, I think I think if their outfit is cool, but I don't know, you know, what their outfit means. But I th also think that you should be more afraid of, of cops at Pride than you are of kink at Pride. Right. Because having the presence of cops doesn't make a safer space at Pride and cops need to not be at Pride ever. Um, so the focus has to shift again it, it, to police to police people's kink, but then have police at pride makes <laughs> literally no sense. <laughs> well said. I think it would be real helpful if you would take a minute um, to help folks who might be a bit newer to the conversation and mm -hmm. you would be so generous to walk through why it's so problematic to have police at pride. Um, well, it, pride started by um, black trans femmes who were fighting against police brutality. So it is antithetical to have police at Pride because Pride is not a parade. It is a demonstration, right? It is a march, right? It's that it has been, again, the corporatization has turned it into a parade, right? Has turned it into a spectacle where you can go and kind of watch, even if you, you know, aren't a queer person and not to say that queer people can't come to pride, but if you're going to be a part of a demonstration, then you have to show up in a way that you stand with queer people and you are, uh, this is a, uh, a, a, an opportunity to look at ways that you can either, you know, undo the ways in which that you've been queerphobic in your life or maybe your business, right? Your family life, so on and so forth. Um, it's, it's just not a spectacle, right? And, and police being there, again, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And if you're gonna have black and uh, communities of color at Pride, that doesn't make us feel safe, right? The, the presence of police is the opposite of safe for us. So who is Pride for, right? Is just the question mm -hmm. I have to ask is, who is your Pride for if you're gonna have police there? Um, yeah, and, and what is it? What is Pride if it's not a demonstration against police, right? And against police presence. Folks who have shown over and over and over again that they have no interest in keeping Black and communities of color alive. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So you do a ton of activism work. It's kind of your bread and butter. And it's exhausting and it seems endless, at least to me. Uh, so how do you take care of yourself? Um, I, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it is definitely emotionally exhausting. Um, and I think I have to lean on my community, right? Like my partner reminded me to rest and take naps and being around my friends and just laughing and having a good time. Um, it also looks like checking in on my family and being in communication mm -hmm. with them. Um, and then just simple shit like baths, acupuncture, <laughs> moving my body. Um, mm -hmm. 
those things also help. Um, but really, sometimes I just like to zone out and watch reality TV, like really trash TV. Um, that yep. also helps me just like take a load off, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself doing this work and being in this for another, you know, couple decades? I mean, I'm an educator at heart, so I love educating. I think that is my heart speak for sure. So in any capacity that I can educate, I feel like I'm, I'm more exhausted by educating on the internet um, mm-hmm. than anything. And I used to do so much of it um, and just give, give, give so much that now I'm just like, here's a picture of my dog. like here's a picture of what I'm eating like I'm tired you know like sometimes I was thinking about talking about that today that sometimes I just feel like the things that we say on the internet is in one ear and out the other right like I as an educator at heart it's like I want to give an exam like I want to know what exactly you are taking away because it just feels like if you're not receiving 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 then you're over it and you move on to the next thing so and that's exhausting Right. Mm-hmm. And that feels like the grind, um, the like hamster wheel of capitalism. And I'm just not interested in it. Right. Yeah. I'm just not. Your Instagram has been delightful of late with your. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> your post around that. So no, thank you. That's been thank refreshing. You. Um, well, our, our questions are done, but I can see there's a few in the Q and a, so I wonder if we can pivot over to that. Yeah. I'm going to read them out and uh, sort of let you engage with what makes sense, if that's okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so the first one, uh, when when you say uh, killed spiritually, can you say more about what that really means? Um, is it your own spirit as a people or in a religious context? No, it just means that you kill the spirit of the person. Like you, you don't like yourself anymore. Um, you don't want, for example, um, there have been times in my life where I did, I wished I was not black, that I wished I was a white person. Um, that is killing my spirit, right? That that's enough people saying that there's something wrong with me or making me believe that there's something wrong with me and enough, um, information in the world leading me to believe that I should be, I should desire being something other than who I am. Um, But who I am is my spirit, right? Like who I get to be um, means that my spirit is alive. So it's kind of more in a woo-woo sense. Um, (laughs) And uh, not woo-woo, but I would say also in honoring ancestors, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Someone wanted to loop back to diet culture. So what are your thoughts on people who are doing diets, cleanses just for themselves? It's a big conversation in sort of lunchroom spaces. Um, And as a fat person, it really sucks to hear about it, but it's hard to articulate exactly why. Um, I think that folks should keep the ways that they eat to themselves. Um, I see this a lot with even veganism where folks, um, vegans will kind of, in my experience, hit you over the head with being vegan and be super judgy about what you eat if you eat meat, Um, even though all things are living, even lettuce. So um, it is frustrating. And I think that if you're vegan, then be vegan for yourself, right? You don't need to go Mm -hmm. and, you know, manage what other people eat or even be sharing it in a way that's like, you are now holier than thou because you 
eat this way. Um, right. and, and eating is, is a function of access and a function of privilege. Um, what you are able to eat, even if you're on a cleanse, being able to cleanse and being able to do that in a way where you, you must be working in a position where you're not on your feet all day, where you don't have to take care of two and three kids and maybe a grandma, right? You don't have to take public transportation or wait for it very long because that would have you faint at some point, right? If you are just juicing. But if you are in a privileged position where you juice and you get you know, you drive or you get to go home and rest and maybe somebody else will take care of the kids, right? Then we're starting to look at how privileged it is to do, quote unquote, even to even do diet culture, to engage in it. Right. Also, not everybody can juice, right? Like their body cannot handle that, right? There are so many different health factors that come into play with folks' bodies that keep them from juicing. When I was on chemotherapy, there was no way in the world that I could juice. Nobody could recommend that to me. Um, so I think you have to be mindful again. I think you have to keep what you eat and what you do um, with your body to yourself. I think it's strange when people start to announce that they are juicing or that they are um, on a diet. And um, I just think it has a lot to do with, look at me, I'm doing the right thing mm -hmm. um, and I'm sacrificing. And again, back to what I was talking about, all of that moves away from pleasure. Um, and look how good I am because I'm sacrificing or because I'm working hard. Like rest boo, like don't juice if you're sacrificing, like eat. Like I just, I never, I've never understood juicing. So I love this question. Cause I'm just like, I'm triggered too. I'm like, I don't know why you're yeah. telling me that you're not eating food. Um, and, and it's concerning to me also if somebody has, you know, has a current or a former eating disorder, it can be really challenging to hear people talk about the ways in which they're eating or the ways in which they're not eating. So I think you have to be super mindful of who you're telling that to. And I do feel like sometimes that folks say that they're juicing or that they're on a diet around fat folks um, mm -hmm. as a way to um, correct. Um, and it may be um, uh, you know, uh, subconscious the ways that it's done, but that's the way that I've seen it done oftentimes. That's gross. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that was a fantastic answer. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, <laughs> another one. COVID-19 has hit us hard and here in this part of Canada, we're still under stay at home order. Hopefully for not too much longer. Yeah. Uh, many of us haven't seen friends or family in 16 months and the vaccine rollout in our province has been a giant dumpster fire. Can you talk about uh, choice in getting vaccinated, how black, brown, fat, disabled bodies experience the medical industry and what we should think about when either our clients or colleagues refuse to be vaccinated or to take COVID-19 seriously? I say honor their concerns around vaccine. Um, I was trepidatious around taking the vaccine because of uh, this country and Canada's, Canada's um, uh, history with uh, medical racism. So to deny 
how Black communities feel, Black and Indigenous communities feel around um, being vaccinated, it's just gaslighting. Um, and, you know, I was even, I, sh I shared my trepidation um, maybe in, in, in hindsight is 2020, I regret doing this to some extent, um, where people were calling me an anti-vaxxer um, mm -hmm. and that I, you know, I need to do what's right for people, right? And it was just so ridiculous. Like it's so much, the ways that I feel like medical sort of um, advances are rolled out, are rolled out in a way to, you know, guilt you to do them. Um, and if you don't do them, then there's something wrong with you. So I think, again, we have to remind folks that they have agency and autonomy over their bodies and mm -hmm. Black and Indigenous people even more so because we are treated like our bodies don't belong to ourselves um, and that we have to continue to be controlled. And once we speak out against the ways that we want to be treated, we're regarded like um, we're mad, right? We're regarded like there's something wrong with us and there's not. And it feels so good if somebody's like, I totally understand that you don't want to take the vaccine. So, mm -hmm. you know, just make sure that you are quarantining and that you are wearing a mask, um, that you're washing your hands. You still need to do those things when you're vac vaccinated as well. But um, whatever the protocol is in, you know, to, it, the protocol is the same everywhere, but, you know, to make sure that folks remain safe, right? Um, and then if somebody is denying that COVID exists, then that's a different conversation. And I think that it's ridiculous. Um, I think that it's super hurtful um, considering so many people have lost people and are still dealing with the continued side effects of even getting COVID-19. Um, so I think that it has to be a bit more um, stern even dare I say uh to not have folks to kind of debating its existence so really separating those mm -hmm. vaccine hesitancy versus denial yeah yep. um okay we're going back to police and uh queer uh pride so uh is it the question is is it that the police in uniform is it that, or is it sort of representing police that's unwanted at Pride? So what about queer cops? Would they, would we want them pr uh, present as queer persons separate from their occupation? Yeah, not in uniform. Yeah, so queer, when I say cops, I mean like cops that are working, right? Like they're in uniform, they are policing the events, right? There's barricades, um, they're stopping people. And in Canada and in the US, there have been, uh, this police brutality has happened at Pride because of the presence of police, right? Um, so it doesn't matter if the cop is queer, if they're in uniform and they're policing a black trans person, there's still a cop, right? It doesn't matter if the cop is black, there's still a cop, right? And black queer cops also take the duty of being a police officer, which is to correct culture, which is to correct and police people. I mean, it's really the, the whole origin story of police were to slave patrol and that hasn't changed right in in canada it's very similar right and we're seeing um the presence of how much control has existed in our countries with the recent um unveiling of indigenous boarding schools the burial ground there right there that that is the presence of policing right we don't need 
in a space about pride, right? In a space again, that was resistant to a whole resistance movement to police, right? That started a pride period. Um, it, it doesn't make sense that they would be there, right? It would make sense that it would be the complete opposite, that it would be a space where you could be free of police and policing, right? To be free of policing of our bodies and ourselves. Of yeah. everything, That's right? The core. Of everything. Well, I mean, not to be a little cliche, but I like this question as a last question. Um, <laughs> so sort of regarding all the topics today that were discussed, what progress or sort of forward movement have you been hopeful to see in these past few years? Or are you hopeful that's really on the horizon? I mean, I'm, I think you can't do this work without hope. I think sometimes, some days it's hard for me to be hopeful. Um, but I think... You know, I, I, I was reading a book the other day and it was talking about what is progress. And I think we do have to marinate on how you measure progress of resistance movements when folks are still dying, right? I think, yeah. you know, how, how can I say that there's been progress in this area when the presence of these systems is still very much in place? I mean, what's happening in the United States right now is that they're arguing if that white supremacy should be taken out of schools, like the conversation of white supremacy, of black leadership, of, you know, talking about racism should be removed from schools. So, you know, it's hard for me to consider progress and in, in how do we even measure that, yeah. right? And I think I'm hopeful to abolishing all of these systems, right? I'm hopeful to that one day I will be able to just teach underneath a tree um, and not be bothered even by an academic institution um, because they also are not um, safe, right? And they never have been, they never were created on that premise. Um, I'm hopeful that indigenous people do not have their land you know, dug up um, by drilling, right? And that their land is returned to them. Right. I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, queer people get to exist in the ways in which that they feel that feels good for them um, and that they are not policed inside of who they need to be and who they um, are, are, are or who they don't want to be. Right. Um, I'm hopeful that, you know, black trans femmes will be free and stop being murdered on a continuous basis every single year and that people will actually wake up and start talking about that and the intersections of that. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful of a lot of things. I just don't know how to measure um, progress. Um, I just don't. I think that's a really good reflection question. How do we measure that? Can we even in our time horizon? And yeah. for you to have those hopes still present in the mm -hmm. grind of the work. Um, mm -hmm. that's brave and strong. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks folks for the questions um, and listening in. And Erica, thank you. I feel like I'm now going to listen to this conversation another three or four times to just let it sink in. There was a lot in that. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having <laughs> me. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, A Future Without Violence. ANOVA's on social media, and you can learn more about Piece by Piece and ANOVA at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576.
Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Naji Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation, and music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music access downloaded and used under Creative Commons license by freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.